Lord God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for waking us up and bringing us here healthy. Lord, thank you for your love for us and for your church and for all that you do um, to care for this church specifically. Lord, we are we are so grateful that you obviously are the sh true shepherd and, and leader of this church. Lord, and we just want to submit under that. Lord, we want to honor you. We want to obey you. Lord, help us to do that well this morning. In your name, amen. All right, Psalm 31. So I kind of feel like a broken record in these because I, I really, after I got here, I read my intro and I'm like, I think that's what I said two weeks ago. Um, and it was that this has been a tough week. So it must have been a tough month. Um, and and I could go into details on why this has been a tough couple of weeks, um, but I think ultimately it's because I keep looking at my circumstances rather than my savior. Uh, I keep getting my eyes off my circumstance or on my circumstances. And I, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about just how I was making things good things idols that um, shouldn't have been idols, like they shouldn't have taken priority over God and my love for God. And it seems like that hasn't gone away um, because I'm still looking at my circumstances, still looking at things in this world and, and struggling. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about what I've been doing to shepherd my heart. And, and I think I've said this in this context. I know my small group hears this all the time, but when I'm struggling, I go to Psalms. Um, and there's a few Psalms that I look at specifically, but a lot of times I'll just like, that's the time in my reading plan when I just want to sit there and use the book of Psalms to help guide me in my worship of God. And Psalm 31 stood out to me. This is one that I like to go to. Um, it's a lament psalm of David. Um, and yet there's a part in here that is so sweet because you see David shepherding his heart towards a love for God. And that's what I want to focus on. Um, and so let's just look well, I'll give you an overview. The first five verses are a cry for help. And then it's followed by a profession of confidence in God. And that leads David to a heart of prayer. Um, and so what I want to focus on is really just verse 7 and 8, which are part of that um, profession of confidence in God. Because I think that's helpful. Um, as I've we've talked about shepherding our heart as being a way to... Um, go to the Word of God to meet with the God of the Word. Um, a big piece of that is just looking at God's Word and, and sitting in an understanding of who God is. Um, and that's what we really kind of see David doing here in Psalm 31, 7 and 8. So I'm going to read it. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the troubles of my soul, and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. In these verses, David makes a proclamation about the joy he takes in God's loving kindness. He says, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness. In the midst of a trial, David is shepherding his heart with truth. He knows where he needs to focus, and that is on Yahweh's loving kindness to him. He knows that his perspective needs to shift from himself and onto his Lord. 
and he knows that his disposition needs to shift from brokenness towards gladness. As we come to God's word each week, we need to do the same thing. And I think we as Christians get we as Christians too easily go to the word to solve our problems. Um, I think um, a lot of times we'll look at, like there's so much wisdom in the Bible that that's kind of the means that we're going. Like we either go there to, to learn some truth so that we can know this theological point, or we go there to learn, okay, I need to be a better parent. How do I solve that problem? I'm going to go be a better parent. Or I need to be better with my money. How do I go solve that problem? I know God's word has wisdom in there to help me know how to be better with my money. Um, what I think we do poorly is go to God's word to rejoice and be glad in the Lord. Uh, and so this is David, I think, kind of doing this, recognizing that same problem and going, hey, I'm, I'm focused on my trials and I just need to rejoice and be glad in God's loving kindness. Um, <clears throat> And he does this with four truths. The first truth that he shepherds his heart to be glad is that he recognizes that God has seen his affliction. God knows his trial. God is near. Um, note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God has protected me from affliction. Um, it says he's seen it. And, and I think his seen is so much more than we, we normally just think about. Um, Spurgeon describes it by this this way. He says, God has seen it. He has weighed it, he directed it, he fixed a bound to it, and in all ways made it a matter of tender consideration. That's God's perspective on our trials. It's a tender consideration to him. A man's consideration means the full exercise of his mind. What must God's consideration be? That's comforting to know that God has seen our trials. The second truth is that God has known the troubles of David's soul. This is so much deeper than mere circumstance. Have you ever had a time where you deal with troubles and are just spent at the end of them? Just exhausted. I think we call that COVID fatigue, but we'll just... <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, um, the, <laughs> these may be unverbalized trials, but they're, they're there and they're deep and you don't even know how to articulate them. I believe this is the type of trouble that David is referring to here. He is saying that he will take joy in God's loving kindness because God knows the unspoken troubles. Um, the verb to know in the Greek tells us that God has an intimate fellowship with David in the midst of his suffering. That's, that's sweet, and that's something we need to, to just cling to. Um, when we're in the midst of trial or just in the midst of everyday life, um, and know really what God's loving kindness is, is that he's very near. Um, this is a great assurance. The third truth that David uses to shepherd his heart is that God has not given him over to the hand of the enemy. This is significant. Yahweh knows our affliction, but he has not given us over to our antagonist. As bad as any situation may be, the grace of God that comes from not being completely handed over to the hand of the devil is a sweet mercy of the Lord. And then the fourth and final truth that David shepherded his heart towards joy was that God has set his feet in a large place. This phrase is easy to read past. If you're reading in your, your just normal reading and you say, God has set my feet in a large place, 
I have no idea what that means. So I just keep going. Um, and yet when I looked it up, it's actually an idiom. So like, it kind of is like you have untied my ropes or you've removed my wall. Um, and so I believe David here is actually looking towards future victory. He's actually looking towards the promised Messiah that we know as Jesus. Um, and he's saying, hey, you, you have actually given me a savior. Um, and that's so much bigger than anything that's happening right now. Um, but you've given me a savior. And, and so that, that, like, what a sweet truth that David says, I rest in your loving kindness because I know you're near, because I know you know everything that's going on, and you're in complete control of that, and you gave me a savior. That's two verses in the book of Psalms. And yet it's just a sweet way to shepherd our hearts. Um, in the midst of a lament, and that's the part, I mean, I, I want to leave time for discussion groups in Denny, so we're not going to go through the whole psalm. But what's really interesting here is this is two verses of a lament. And lament psalms are all over the book of Psalms. And that's just David crying out to God. Like, it's not wrong to cry out to God in your circumstances. What's wrong is when you don't shepherd your heart towards a love for God in, that, in the midst of that. Um, and David is, has such a good example in this book of how to do that well. Um, and a couple where he could do it better. Um, but we all could. And that's a good example, too. Um, so what can we learn from David today? Um, we can't be going to the Word of God to check a box. David wasn't checking a box. He was worshiping here. God is really the only one that provides comfort. Um, he, was a, he is our creator, and we need to know him. Um, this book is a love letter from God to man about who he is. Um, if we want to know who our Savior is, who our God is, we need to be intimately familiar with this. It's, you got a love letter from your wife you would probably read it more than once. You would want to know every word, especially if you're not there with her. Like You'd want to be able to interact with that love letter in a different way than you interact with a novel. Um, we need to interact with this book the way we would a love letter. Um, David, and the last thing I have is, David was a man after God's own heart, and in the midst of a lament, he needed to remind himself of truths about God to keep his eyes on the right thing. So don't have so much pride to think that you're better than David. Um, we need to go to God's word so that we can um, just know the truths about our Savior. David's constantly an example for us, and he wasn't perfect. That's helpful. Um, and so let's not think of ourselves as better than David, and let's go to God's word. Let's shepherd our hearts towards that. Well, uh, I know most of you in this room. Uh, my name is Denny Pagel. I have been an elder at Grace Bible Church for about five years. Uh, was uh, saved at the ripe old age of 44, uh, which was in 1993. So if you do the math, you know that uh, this guy is over the hill and uh, <laughs> close to being on the way out. So anyway, uh, but it's a joy to be here. Like I say, I know some of you. Uh, some of you very well, uh, some of you I don't. So anyway, uh, let's pray and then we'll uh, get started. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you've given us hearts that bend to your word. And may we humble our hearts today and learn from your messages through the kings of Saul and David and Solomon. And we know that uh, you, uh, every word that you have written in your book is inspired by you and it is uh, profitable for us for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and training in righteousness. And we are so grateful, Father. Thank you again for this opportunity to open up your word. Give us hearts that uh, are soft to your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, first of all, I'd like to in encourage you. Um, our small group recently went through a book. It's called The Transforming Power of the Gospel. Uh, probably the biggest thing that uh, I learned out of this book was the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it is, it's just a, a, a great book. It, it causes us to uh, know that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and God gave you his word, uh, which is uh, his uh, inspired word through the Holy Spirit. So it's just, a, it's a really good book uh, to uh, draw you closer. And it also uh, teaches you more about the spiritual disciplines that we are to have uh, through, through his word, through prayer, um, and even challenges in you in some areas in scripture memorization, which is an area that uh, I kind of go off the road a little bit. And uh, so anyway, uh, so today we're going to uh, take a look at uh, Israel's first three kings. And uh, you, uh, you have a handout. And if you uh, looked over that handout at all, you'll know that... Uh, there is a boatload of scripture in there. And so as we work through this, uh, I would like you to follow along that outline and be ready to help me read uh, some of these passages because I don't want to uh, be up here and uh, just have it be a one-way street. So if you would follow along, that would be, uh, that'd be great. And I'll call upon you when uh, I'll just ask for someone to read uh, a particular passage. So. So we're going, to, uh, we're going to see how these things that we learn out of uh, Saul and David and Solomon, how they uh, come to impact our lives and how we are to examine our lives uh, in, in uh, using their example. So this, the, uh, the lessons, the eight lessons, and there's at least eight of them that are outlined in your... Uh, in your handout, number one is to be wary of pride in seasons of success. We're going to look at uh, kings and uh, see how their success caused them to um, exercise periods of pride. And the passage we're looking at is 1 Peter 5, 5. Uh, I'll read that one. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in Jeremiah 17, 9, if someone has that passage, it is to remember the deceitfulness of your own heart. So does someone have that one that they can read? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, thank you. 
The third one, counsel yourself away from justifying sin. Very easy for us to move in that direction because we all consider ourselves to be much better than we really are. And we have a tendency to look uh, not vertically at a holy God when we sin. We have a tendency to look horizontally at others and say, well, I am not as bad as that individual, or at least I'm not doing that. But um, so we are... We are very good. When I say we, I'm one of the chiefs at uh, justifying my sin. So it, uh, in 1 Samuel 15:21, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Uh, we're going to see uh, how uh, Saul dealt with uh, justifying sin. Then... Um, don't confuse external repentance with biblical repentance. That is 2 Corinthians 7, 11. If someone has that, if you would mind reading that for me. For behold, the same self, for behold, the self-same things that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness is wrought in you, yea, what clearing in yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, Yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Okay. Um, that must be out of the New Kings, New King James, is that? <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, very, uh, very important. This is a principle that uh, we often... Uh, I mean, we, we undergo sinful action every day. And it is very, very important for us to know what repentance looks like. And uh, the more that you undergo sin, the more that you repent, confess of your sin, uh, we have a tendency to maybe just give lip service to this. Uh, it's easy to go to my wife and say, please forgive me for doing this. And she'll say, give me a minute. Because... She, she knows that I'm quick to want to smooth things over and move on, and, but she's asking me to stop. Okay, test your heart. Are you really repentant? Are you really sorrowful over this sin? So um, we know that repentance is, uh, is we turn away from sin uh, and uh, a part of uh, 2 Corinthians 7.11 reminds us that we are to have, be disgusted over our sin and actually hate our sin. Because when we look at our sin, we want to compare our sin to the holiness of God. And uh, when we do that, uh, uh, we don't even, we stack up in, uh, um, in, in a very small pile. So, uh, and sin causes us to be separated from God, so we desire fellowship with God. We want to be restored to God. And, uh, and then we want to, uh, as a part of our repentance, we want to walk in repentance. In other words, it's just not a quick... Well, I repent of that sin, but I'm quickly going to return to uh, practicing that, uh, that sin action. And then another part of repentance is that we want to see justice done. In other words, we want uh, to make it right with those whom we have sinned against. And that is going to them, confessing uh, of, their, of your sin and seeking their forgiveness. So anyway, very important passage. We're going to see how that, uh, uh, how these three kings handled that. Uh, 
so the next one uh, is to look for a way to escape when faced with a situation in which you have demonstrated weakness, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Uh, does someone have that one? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Okay, thank you. The, um, so we, we, uh, when we are convicted of sin, we are to realize when we're about to enter into that sinful action. And there are many different ways for us to move away from that, to escape from that. And one of the things that I have found is that uh, when I am tempted to do something uh, and that is sinful, I draw my attention to the cross. Christ went to the cross, suffered and died for that sin. So how can I willfully go into that sin when I know that it caused my Savior to, to suffer and to die? Uh, the next one is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is Matthew 5, 4. And uh, we, we know that we are to mourn over our sin. Our sin should disgust us. Disgust us. And uh, that is the, that's one of the, the first step of being saved is to be, recognize your sin and to mourn over that sin. The next one that we have is when faced with sin, remind yourself that one who thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And then the last one that you have, remember that we cannot conceal anything from God. We have to, we have to know this, that uh, in Proverbs 5, 5.21 it says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches our paths. And then a supporting passage that I noted is Hebrews 4.13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So we have to realize that every step that we take, every, uh, every path that we're on, there is nothing hidden from him. And so if you think you're going to get away with something and uh, uh, step over it or whatever, uh, please think again. So... Those are, the, uh, those are the heart lessons that we're supposed to take a look at. And so today we're going to start uh, in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to uh, be looking at chapter 17. We're going to start in verses 14 through 20. The book of Deuteronomy is recording uh, the speeches that, uh, that Moses made just before Israel uh, went into the promised land. And one of the things that we are going to look at is that uh, how what's God, what God's plan for Israel was. And God's plan for Israel was to lead them out of Egypt and that the, so that they would be different. And he would make them different than all the nations that were around them. And so his plan included, included that they would be governed by his laws and that Israel would not need a king because God would be their king. Israel would be set apart. In other words, they would be holy. And that, and that God would give them military victories over the nations occupying 
the promised land. So this was, this was God's plan for Israel. And uh, unfortunately, he also knew that they, Israel, would be unfaithful. And in time, he would have to give them a king. So uh, in, the first, uh, uh, in the first passage that we're going to read together, uh, we're going to see uh, what God's, uh, how God laid out the plan uh, to provide a king for, uh, for Israel. Uh, God had already spoke to Israel about how he would do or what he would do for them when they got over into the promised land. So we're going to look at, uh, I want to read a couple of passages before we get to Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 9, 1, he says, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Verse 3, Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. So God has already prepared Israel. And he's spoken to them uh, uh, several different occasions and telling them that he is their God. He's going to care for them when they get to, to the promised land. He's going to drive out uh, these nations. He will help them to be victorious. And he has already indicated to them that he would be their king. But God knew that Israel wouldn't rest until they had a king like the other nations around him. So, um, if someone has Deuteronomy 17, uh, 14 through 20, this is Moses uh, describing the kind of king God is proposing for them. So, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, if someone could read that. Okay. Uh, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire any wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself a possessive, excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue on in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, thanks, Emmanuel. So, uh, we want to break this down into uh, several uh, different uh, facets. The first one I think that you have in your homework is called the, is the provision, and this is listed in verse 14 of what we just read. 
And it says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you. That's what he has provided to them. So uh, when giving Israel his guidelines for their kings, God wanted Israel to remember how he had brought them out of Egypt through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Their possession of the promised land was only because God had given it to them. So in the same way, God had the authority, that he had the authority to give them the land, he also had the authority to provide governing principles to them. And so he had the authority to regulate and provide rules for them. Now, it was kind of a, uh, unique in that uh, God did not design Israel to take the gospel out to other nations. Uh, his design for, for Israel was for them to live within their borders and to live in such a way that people would notice the difference. So we'll move on to the second, uh, the second item there, pride. That's in verses uh, 16 and 17. And the passage says, And you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me. This is Israel speaking back to God. God already told Israel what he would uh, that he would be their king. And it was mentioned uh, again in Deuteronomy 14.2, and he says to them, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. What, what a chosen or a special uh, privilege or race. So God's design for Israel is that uh, uh, Israel's governance is that he would be their king, he would give them the law, he would give them protection over the, uh, other nations, he would give them peace. This was all so that the surrounding nations could see the stark difference of Israel and that those other nations would be drawn to Israel. That was his intent. God's design in the Old Testament is that the Gentiles would come to Israel and he would, and would use their unique status as a nation without a king as one of a primary as the way that they should do things. So, but Israel would say, no, I want a king so that I cannot be separate from all the other nations and so that I can be the same as other nations. So what prohibitions or things uh, to guard against do we see in verses 16 and 17? Well, we see uh, that the king shall not multiply horses for himself. In other words, uh, uh, when um, a kingdom in, uh, in this period of time accumulated a large number of horses, uh, horses, uh, soldiers on horses were much more effective than soldiers on foot. And so God wanted the king, uh, a king whose confidence was in him, not in his own military might. He shall not multiply. Uh, the second prohibition is he shall not multiply wives for himself. And God wanted a king whose devotion was to one wife, uh, just as uh, there would be uh, his devotion would flow to one God. And then uh, the, the third provision or prohib prohibit prohibitation or prohibit 
prohibition, thank you, <laughs> uh, shall, uh, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And God wanted a king who would daily find his treasure in the Lord and not in the wealth that he had acquired. And so we, uh, these are some of the heart lessons that we uh, look to ourselves. In other words, are we accumulating things? Are we trusting in things, uh, uh, our possessions, our education, whatever we have uh, to provide for us rather than trusting in the Lord and resting in his provision for us? So we uh, move on to the next, the prescription, which is in uh, verses 18 and 19. And uh, I thought this was very interesting. These are the things that the king must do. And he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of Levitical priests. Now that, uh, you know, we as believers, we open God's word, but uh, at no time have, uh, have I taken the opportunity to write down God's word and put it next to me uh, so that I can draw upon it uh, and look at it every day. But this is what uh, God's directive was. Uh, notice who does the writing. The king of God's chosen people is to write a copy of the law himself. And it shall, it shall be with him. A copy was placed, uh, is to be placed uh, to the side of his throne so that he would have immediate access to God's wisdom in all situations. And the passage says he shall read it all the days of his life. It's not enough simply to write it down, but the king needs to inform himself of God's design for him and notice how often he does this, all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear, the passage says, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, being carefully observing of all the words of this law and these statutes. And we see that this is God's way of creating a reverence for him when we are diligently in his word and diligently obeying his law. And so uh, the last part of the passage says, his heart may not be lifted above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. So just in a short passage, he's given a lot of instruction to kings and of course uh, to us. And so we see that uh, uh, from this that we are to be in God's word every day. And uh, as a result of being in God's word, um, we should be humble in our dealings with our neighbors. We should uh, not be looking to exalt ourselves uh, above others. And uh, we should be resolved uh, to be obedient uh, to what we are reading. So the promise then uh, the last area there under, uh, before we move into King Saul, is in verse 20, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God's design was that Israel would forever be a light to the dark nations around them. And so that is, that is God's design for Israel's king. So uh, let's move on and take a look at what, uh, uh, how Saul performed to that. Uh, I should remind you, first of all, that in 1 Samuel 8, the prophet Samuel warned Israel again what a, uh, what a human king or an earthly king would bring. 
And uh, this is kind of a, an eye-opening, uh, or eye, these are eye-opening phrases. He says, the king will place your son in his military. He will make your daughters his cooks and his bakers. He will take your very best land and your very best livestock and tax your harvest and take your best servants. So what part of a king, of that king, do you want? So anyway, so let's move on to Saul. And we've broken this down. Your outline says the start, the warning, the compromise, and the response to sin. So in the, very, uh, in the start, we have uh, Saul uh, has been made the king of Israel. Uh, during this time, other nations are oppressing Israel. And the way that they did that is that they brought siege uh, onto Israel. And usually they would surround that country, cut off their food supply, cut off their water supply in some form or another, and they would gradually give in. And so one of the, na one of the nations that regularly did this was the, the nation of Ammon. And so the verses we're going to read to show us how Saul came to be prominent in Israel is in 1 Samuel 11, verses 1, 4, 6, and 7. So uh, I will read uh, verse 1 and 4. And then if someone else could get, take uh, 6 and 7, uh, that would be great. Verse 1 says, Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And this is uh, the nation of Ammon coming into Israel. And there are uh, 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 Israel is going to uh, give in to uh, the, the nation of Ammon. At least that's what their initial thought was. And uh, in verse 4 it says, Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. All the people lifted up their voices and wept. And the reason why they wept is that the Ammonites uh, said that, uh, they, that uh, Israel could come and live and serve, but that they were going to gouge out their right eye. So... Uh, they had every reason to, to weep over that type of situation. They had already uh, come to an agreement that they would move or go there or, or have uh, the Ammonites serve over them. Then uh, we see in uh, chapter 11, verses 6 and 7, and if you have, who has that? Uh, can you read that? Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of Yahweh fell on the people, and they came out as one man. Okay. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and uh, he made... Uh, he. Uh, incorporated or used a, an activity or an event to bring everyone together. And uh, uh, it was kind of a fear tactic, but it brought everyone together to function uh, under one man. And in 1 Samuel 11, 11, it says, The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the, midst of the camp of the at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, those who survived were scattered so that no two of them 
we're left together. So uh, we have some, uh, just a couple of ob observations before we move along. Uh, we are looking at Israel in a vulnerable state here. That was described in verse 1. And then we see that the Spirit of God came upon Saul in verse 6. And uh, we see that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is, was uh, sometimes a temporary thing. It may come on to uh, someone for a period of time or for a specific purpose. And that is contrary to the Holy Spirit that we have today. The Holy Spirit that dwells within us is a permanent uh, uh, spirit that's a part of us. So the Old Testament Holy Spirit uh, is uh, different than the, the New Testament. So it was uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. The dread of the Lord fell on the people because Saul's willingness to stand up to Israel's oppressors. Saul possesses some level of military strategy and wisdom because he divided it, the, the uh, Israel into three military uh, units. And if you look into Saul's background, he uh, came from uh, the tribe of the Benjamites. His family was wealthy, he was well-educated, and he had some military training. So now he had the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, and he was ready to, uh, he was well-positioned to be Israel's king. So then we move on to uh, the next uh, heading that you have there, item number two, the warning. And just a few words of context before we get to uh, that uh, uh, 1 Samuel 15, 3. Uh, uh, Saul became king about 400 years after Israel came out of Egypt. So we've got several years that have passed by. Saul's reign as king was from the years of uh, 1050 to 1010 B.C. And uh, so uh, Israel was journeying, journeying uh, out of the promised land into the wilderness. Amalek was a, uh, a, a king uh, and a tribe that had set himself against Israel. So he became a nag uh, or a um, um, uh, hindrance to Israel. And now the Lord is about to exercise his vengeance against Amalek and this is centuries later that he's coming back to avenge himself. And so we see that uh, um, uh, God doesn't forget to uh, sin against his people. So if someone has uh, 1 Samuel 15, 3, this is the Lord speaking through Samuel to Saul. So if someone has that, if you could read that. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Okay. We see this is pretty pretty finite. It's pretty specific. You have to take no survivors. So let's go down to uh, 1 Samuel 15, verses 7 through 9. If someone has that, we're going to see the compromise that Saul made. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, 
and all that was good and were not willing and were not willing to destroy them utterly that everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed so the first observation is this that god gave saul a victory gave him great success uh, but then saul started to make a few decisions on his own he uh, he he spared Agag, the best of the sheep, ox, and lambs, and he thought this was good because he was going to take them back and sacrifice them. Here we see a heart issue of Saul. Uh, then we see pride uh, in uh, verse 9. Saul was more than happy to destroy everything despised and worthless. However, he was not willing to destroy everything utterly as he was instructed to do. So, on the, on the heels of great success, Saul deliberately asserted his own will over and against God's commands, and through his, he thought his way was better than God's way. Success had given him the confidence in his own ability to make decisions. So now let's see uh, the response to sin. In 1 Samuel 15, and uh, there, this is a... a there are several verses in here, starting in verse 20, and uh, I will read uh, uh, a portion of these. Then Saul said to Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So does the Lord delight in burnt offerings as much as he delights in obedience? No. So Saul made that decision. It was the wrong decision. So then in verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So the hard issues that we see coming out of uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, he asserted his own rightness in his, in his, his own thinking. Uh, we see blame shifting in verse 21. And we also see justification. He did this. He, he's going to make, uh, he did not do what God said. He's going to take those uh, uh, animals back and provide sacrifices. And he confessed. He did confess he outward acknowledged his sin. He confessed. But when? After he was caught. So one of the things that we, uh, we look for uh, in teaching our children is that when, uh, that it's not an appropriate time that after you're caught to confess your sin is that uh, when you, you're convicted of that sin and you know that you've sinned, that is the time to confess and uh, to seek forgiveness. So uh, Saul here confessed after he was caught. 
And uh, then uh, Saul wanted to look good and he wanted his kingship to be aligned with Samuel, which was a, is a pride issue for him. So then let's uh, look at the outcome. So what happened? We go to uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, verses 26 and 35. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So this is the outcome in verses uh, in 1 Samuel 15, 26, and then verse 35. Um, Samuel was a prophet. He was a, godly, uh, a very godly man. Uh, he did not want to be associated with disobedience. And now God is removing an unfaithful, disobedient leader. God's plan is through obedience. He will protect and provide peace. So we move to the end of Saul's life, and we, have, uh, we go to 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 3 and 4. Does anyone have that passage handy? So from our perspective, or a human perspective, uh, we see that Saul took his own life. But from God's perspective, we see that God is now removing an unfaithful leader to make room for a man after God's own heart, and that would be David. So the, uh, the questions that uh, are applied, that we should apply to our hearts, uh, um, how inclined are we to trust our own assessment when we have experienced recent success? How quickly are we to, do we pat ourselves on the back and think how good we did in this particular situation? And um, we become confident in our success thinking that it was all our doing, uh, which may eventually reduce our ability to resist temptation and sin. So let's move on to David. We take a look at the, uh, it's broken down into the, the start again, and that's uh, in uh, uh, the context around uh, David. Israel is in a season of discipline from the Lord. Saul is still king. And uh, the Philistines are one of God's chosen instruments. They are a very strong military nation. And on the scene comes David. And uh, we know the story of David and Goliath. And if someone has uh, 1 Samuel 17, I would like you to read verses 26 and then verse 45 and 46. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, 
But I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Mm. Thank you. So, uh, in summary, um, David is absolutely confident in God's power and in his uh, ability to defend his own reputation. And so we see that, uh, that, that uh, David start, anyway, in, in um, rising to kingship. His heart is humble, and he is fully trusting in the Lord. And we see that David is pleased to be a representative of God because he's proclaiming it uh, in front of all of the uh, Israel troops and uh, to the uh, uh, Philistines. So we see another future king is off to a good start. So now we take a look at the warning. And to do that, we go back to Deuteronomy 17, uh, 17 and which says, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. So notice what God is saying his, here is that God, uh, that his heart will turn away. So the um, uh, note that uh, this turning away is, uh, is distinct from the command uh, not to intermarry with other nations, but it is language that is where the, God, uh, the, the, uh, the king is turning his heart away because of wives. Uh, and the attention that he needs to uh, give them. So, as wives increase, the, in, the attention of the king is drawn to, to all those wives and away from the nearness uh, uh, to the Lord that is necessary for a good king. So, let's uh, now take a look at uh, the compromise that occurred uh, in uh, uh, David's life. And if uh, someone has Second Samuel, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Ilium, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Okay, thanks. So, in um, to summarize, uh, this is uh, David is now uh, he is residing in Jerusalem. Uh, he spent his first seven years as king in the city of Hebron, and in Hebron uh, he had already taken on multiple wives uh, in that city, uh, at least three women. Uh, they were Michael, uh, Ahianom, and Abigail. So um, in Israel, he also took on additional wives. We see in 2 Kings 5.13 that 
that he took on more concubines and wives. So David at this point had uh, disregarded uh, that warning that was uh, described in Deuteronomy uh, 17. So the, um, um, we see that uh, David's heart was distracted and he was, uh, uh, from what he was supposed to be doing, we see that the rest of the kings had gone out to battle. David stayed at home and uh, we see that uh, uh, with his heart already turned away, sin was not far off and it was only a matter of time because of his weakened condition that he would fall into sin. So now uh, let's take a look at uh, uh, David's response to sin. 2 Samuel 11, 8, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 8, 10, 14, and 15. Uh, I'll read through those. Uh, then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. Verse 10. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Then verse 14. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So what was David's first response to sin? Yep. He wanted to hide his sin. And he made multiple attempts to get Uriah to go back down and sleep with his wife so that it would cover up uh, his uh, action with uh, Bathsheba. Um, and we all know the uh, then he was given, uh, Uriah even carried the letter to uh, um, the, the commander and uh, basically David effectively committed murder by putting Uriah out there uh, to uh, fend for his own. Uh, so some time passes, uh, David marries Bathsheba, she has a son, and uh, in, uh, we see that uh, in, I think it's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, Nathan comes as a prophet, and he appeals to David's conscience by giving him a story that is an analogy of what he has done. So his analogy is this. Uh, a traveler comes to stay with a rich man who has great flocks and herds. The rich man takes one, the one and only lamb from a poor man in order to provide for the traveler. So then in 2 Samuel 12, verses 5, 7, and 13 is David's response. And it says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. In verse 7, Nathan then said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So David's second response is that he acknowledges his sin 
and we look we see that uh, when we when we take a look at Psalm 51 if uh, anyone has Psalm 51 open if you would read the first four verses this is a representative uh, or this is what describes uh, David's heart David's second response is that he appeals for grace. He's aware of his sin, and he's aware that his sin has put him in a position where he merits no favor uh, with God. And he is aware that this is truly offensive to God. So we see, uh, we see David's repentance uh, as biblical repentance and versus Saul's repentance as one that he just was giving it lip service uh, so that he could move on and, and uh, go about his way. So what's the outcome? Uh, what's the end of David's life look like? Uh, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, if someone has that, would you read that? Thank you. Uh, in summary, David knew the most important truth to impart to his son was to teach him the importance of submitting to the Lord. David is ending well. His heart was humble. He confessed his sin and repented. So let's uh, quickly move on to Solomon. And Solomon is David's son. And uh, we, we uh, see the start of Solomon's kingship. It's described in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 7 and 9, and then 11 uh, through 13. And uh, so if you want to turn there, uh, I'll read uh, verses 7 and 9, and then if someone can pick up 11 through 13. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, Yet I am but what a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. So, verse 9, So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. 
for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Then verse 11, does someone have that? God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among kings like you all your days. Mm. How? <laughs> what an introduction, huh? Um, so... Uh, so you see the pattern here. We have uh, we've, the first three kings. They all started very well. And uh, Solomon could not have asked for a better thing. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for a big military force. He asked for wisdom. So moving on to the warning that uh, was already in place. This is in Numbers 33, verses 50 and 52. And I'll read that. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. So you see the word all there repeated over again. So uh, before they get into the promised land, there is already uh, other gods that exist there and other idols. Uh, and God knows that, he's, uh, that uh, Israel will be drawn uh, to these idols. So uh, to further on the warning then, uh, we go back to Deuteronomy 17 and verses 16 and 17. And just uh, real quickly to summarize, you shall not multiply horses for yourself. Uh, you shall not multiply wives uh, for yourself, and you shall not greatly increase silver and gold for yourself. So we already talked about uh, uh, what uh, soldiers on horses uh, are much more of an advantage than horses on foot, uh, and they will be a um, they will cause the king's confidence to be put in his own strength rather than deliverance from the Lord. So. Um, we go on to um, further in the uh, uh, warning, and we move, uh, move on from the warning to the compromise. We go to 1 Kings 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 3b. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Notice what he's doing here. He's trying to merge religions. He's trying to melt religions together here. And God won't have it. So Solomon was very happy to keep the statutes, uh, the same statutes as David. Uh, but he also held fast to the worship of other gods. So the compromise. Um, in 1 Kings 10, 14 and 15... Now the weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that from the traders and the wares of the merchants of all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country. 
Israel was in a position now where they can impose uh, tributes uh, or tariffs on their surrounding nations and they were getting annual fees. So Solomon was building a huge treasury of wealth. And so um, the, the personal application here is that uh, once again, uh, are we seeking after higher paying jobs for this, this, the sheer wealth of it? Do we seek to make better investments for the wealth of it? Or are we doing it to glorify God? First um, Kings 10:26. Uh, uh, further in the compromise, uh, now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, just a similar situation there that he was accumulating wealth and he was also uh, uh, acquiring a huge military force. Uh, in uh, 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3, if you're keeping up and you have that uh, verse open, would you read that for me, please? Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughters, daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. So we see that uh, Solomon had a weakness, right? It was a, a weakness uh, for uh, uh, women. Uh, so in summary, um, Solomon could not say no to temptation. And um, we don't see his response to this sin right away. But we do see it a little bit later in, uh, in Ecclesiastes uh, when he reflects on the end of his life. Uh, and on the foolishness of his sin. So if we go to Ecclesiastes 7.26, it says that, And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. So at the end of Solomon's life, he was able to see the true nature of, uh, of foreign women, foreign women, uh, and whereas that they were at one point beautiful and attractive, now he sees them as what they really are. They were always snares and nets to him. They were constraining and robbing him of affections for the Lord. So in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, the uh, it says, the conclusion when all has been heard is Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So um, we see uh, great wisdom in that. Uh, so in, in uh, what was the outcome? And we get to uh, uh, 
into 1 Kings 11, 11 through 14. And uh, if someone has that open, if you wouldn't mind reading that. Yeah, 14. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was, he was of the royal line of Edom. Okay. Um, so what we, what we see here is that uh, you see the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon and uh, he was not going to allow um, uh, Solomon's end to be uh, uh, one of tra uh, tranquility. And so the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, servant that is mentioned there is Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was a servant of Solomon, and he was on the road one day, and the prophet Ahijah came up to him, and he had a new, a new robe, and he tore it into um, uh, several pieces, and he gave uh, ten pieces to um, Jeroboam and said, you will rule uh, over uh, ten nations. And uh, so, and that's what, what happened is that uh, um, Solomon found out and he sent to, and, uh, and he went after Jeroboam. Jeroboam escaped to Egypt and he stayed there until uh, Solomon had passed away. Rehoboam, who was uh, Solomon's son, he took over and, but he didn't obey the, the elders that uh, uh, were, were given to him. And what caused, or what happened then, is that the tribes split, and Jeroboam uh, became the king, who was just a servant of of um, Solomon's over the northern tribe, and Rehoboam the king over the southern tribe. Um, the uh, uh, the point being, and we need to uh, look at this, is that Solomon's desire for multiple women and foreign gods. Led him to uh, led, they led him to worship those foreign gods and the, and uh, be drawn away from the Lord. It had implications far beyond his lifetime. His desire his desire for multiple wives at the heart of the division was at the heart of the division of Israel into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so the southern kingdom kingdoms were uh, basically kingdoms that. Uh, uh, it went through several kings. They were kings that were not uh, were not godly, and uh, um, the southern kingdom, uh, which was ruled over by uh, eventually by um, uh, Rehoboam and uh, uh, 
the, the, the tribe of Judah was the, the tribe that where Christ would be, would be coming from. So that's a, a, lot, of, a lot of scripture, a lot of uh, kingship, uh, but the, uh, the point is is that these kings started out good and uh, some of them disregarded warnings and, uh, and even those that disregarded warnings like David who uh, had a heart of repentance, confessed his sin, uh, ended, up, uh, ended up well. So uh, thank you for being attentive. And uh, this is a, uh, a rather long lesson, but uh, again, uh, we are to look at how these things apply to our own hearts and uh, um, apply them as, they, uh, as the Bible would have us do that. So let me pray and we'll be done. Father, again, thank you for the men in this room. Thank you for their hearts. Thank you for their desires to uh, be a part of a ministry where they can uh, shepherd their own hearts, shepherd their family, and uh, most of all, Father, to be obedient and pleasing to you. And we, we are so thankful that we, would, we have been given your word, and your word was written for us as children, your children. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.